All right, I know you came today because you are excited about the book of Ecclesiastes. Yeah, that felt fake, but I appreciate it anyway, you know. We will take it. So go ahead and grab your Bible and uh, navigate to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. And we're going to have an interesting time today. And I think really what's going on is you read the title of the sermon and thought, finally, that's the message we have all been waiting for. Eat, drink, and be merry. Not exactly, but kind of. We'll have to do a lot of legwork to to make sense of that. So as we get ourselves ready to navigate what will be the interesting text of chapter 8 and half of chapter 9, we should probably remind ourselves about what's going on in the book of Ecclesiastes. I know I've had more than one person ask me, why did you choose Ecclesiastes? And I think the, the basic, you know, heart behind that question is, it's a really depressing book. Like, what are we doing there, especially during this season? I don't know about you, but a depressing book makes the most sense a depressing holiday, right? No, I'm just joking. Okay, that was a joke. Yeah, wow, everybody's like, no, it really is depressing. I love Christmas. I'm just kidding. Okay. That was a fail. I'm just going to start over. <laughs> okay, Ecclesiastes does have a feeling of being pessimistic. This is true. Um, it would be false for me to say, oh, no, we're just reading it wrong if you look at it that way. No, there's, there's definitely a pessimistic feeling um, sense to the world um, when you read it through the eyes of Ecclesiastes. Now, I want to be clear as we, we say this. When we read the New Testament, it's a lot more hopeful um, it feels more hopeful, and, you know, I'm, I'm one of those guys, I don't like, you know, the worst thing about, anybody listen to K-Love? My least favorite thing about K-Love is not that they play the same songs in the same hour, like, just on repeat. That's not the worst part. The worst part is that expression. They, they say every single time, what kind of K-Love is it? It's positive and encouraging. K-Love, oh, yeah, somebody can sing it, yeah. I know who listens to K-Love. And there's nothing wrong with being positive and encouraging, but I feel like we live in an American culture, a a Christian American culture, and I should say subculture within Christianity. There's a bubble in America where we as evangelicals operate, and we are very easily sold, very easily buy into some version of the prosperity gospel. We believe, whether we believe in an official prosperity gospel or not, We have this written, built-in, kind of hardwired in our minds belief system that says if we do right, God will bless. If we do wrong, God will punish. And, of course, we can go to the Scriptures and see see that exact lingo used in different places. We we see this idea in Galatians chapter, the end of the book, I think it's chapter 6. It says, do not be mocked. God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. There's a direct correlation between honoring the Lord and the Lord honoring you. In fact, we love, especially when it comes time to pass the plate, our favorite passage on giving is probably, you know, test the Lord in this and see if he will not open the storehouses of heaven and pour out on you blessing. I've heard that passage so many times growing up as a kid. I was like, man, if you want to be wealthy, just give everything. He'll, he'll like, it's like this unending loop and that's, not how that works. Um, I've known plenty of believers who still go bankrupt and still have financial problems. But we, we really like this idea of living in a world 
where we can force God's hand. That's not the lingo we use. We, we use it in more positive, encouraging sort of lingo. But what we mean is if I act right, I can obligate the Lord to do good things for me. Or if someone's receiving justice maybe in their life, or maybe you don't know if it's justice, you just know they're suffering, we immediately go to, well, they did something wrong. It makes them deserve that. I mean, and even in our system of economy, capitalism reinforces this idea because if you work hard in our system, you have all this opportunity, there's an assumption then that you should be able to do well for yourself. And if you're not doing well for yourself, it's clearly your fault. You, you've got every opportunity before you. This is your own problem. And so we've wedded both our, our cultural system and our not exactly correct theological system. We put them together and we are just open to some form of the prosperity gospel. We want to obligate God to bless us, to honor us, to do what is right with us. We come up with different ways to do it. And Ecclesiastes is that harsh reality check in the Bible that says sometimes that's just not how it works. Sometimes the righteous suffer. Sometimes the wicked prosper. Sometimes no matter, no matter how hard you try, your plans fail. We, we could say that, well, that's an Old Testament idea, but we'll see it just as clearly in the New Testament, perhaps in the book of James. You're probably familiar with some of these passages. Don't say you're going to go to such and such place and do such and such business when you get there. What do you have to add to it when you say that? Do you remember in the book of James? If the Lord wills. I was like, you don't, you don't know what you're doing tomorrow. If the Lord wills, I'll do such and such tomorrow. And there's a sense in which we could call that pessimism. But I'm hoping when we finish today, we'll see that that's just reality. It's just a, a shaking. It's a reminder of what the real world is. Because sometimes you have to shake away the, the dreams. Shake away the, the, the ideologies that aren't true. Shake away the unworthy parts of your theology. So you can have clear enough vision to do what is right, to do it the correct way, to do it God's way. And in the end, Ecclesiastes has one very simple message. And he says, this is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. And fear God in that case does specifically mean fearful of God and expectation of judgment. That's the next verse. Is you need to do what the Lord commands you to do. So there's no real mystery to the book of Ecclesiastes. The mystery is not the book itself, but rather the, the mismatched theology that we operate in. doesn't always work in perfect congruency with the Scriptures. It's not the Scriptures that are broken. It's us. It's our world. It's our belief system. So let's dive in, and uh, let's just see if we can make sense of what's going on today. So I want to try a different strategy this time. Um, before we read the passage, I want to cover the first three points in the outline, and then with those ideas in our minds, then we'll go in and read the text. Because there's a tendency, when you dive into Ecclesiastes, you'll read one verse and think you can make a lot out of that verse that the verse doesn't really say. It only says that if you don't realize what it's saying in the bigger picture. So I'm going to give you three realities of life that the guy writing Ecclesiastes is trying to sell us. So number one, um, you have little control in life. Now, some of us already know this. Uh, you have very little control in life. And then when you do find ways to gain control in your life, it's only a matter of time 
before something happens and your plan didn't work. There's some circumstance that came, some illness that came, some death that came, some injustice that came, some unforeseen aspect of life or something you were counting wouldn't happen, did happen. You just don't have complete control over everything. And I know as a, as a younger man, when I first left college, got married, it was like, man, I got this. I got this figured out. I'm sitting here reading the Bible. I want to go pastor church. We're going to do it right because all these churches are doing it wrong, which is a, that's a youthful, arrogant attitude. Let's just own that right now. I know that now. Back then, it was righteous indignation. It was a different sort of thing. And so what happens is you get into church, and besides the fact that church is filled with nothing but one type of person, sinners. And I'm high on the Reformed side of uh, you know, theology, and so point one in Tulip is total depravity. All right, so you're just fooling yourself. You're ever going to have a perfect church, all right? Because let alone, you're not going to have a perfect church. There's also, it's never going to be led by a perfect pastor, right? So you got to do it. Then you have children, and then you realize that there is no control in life at all. I mean, I really, I, I just knew I had it. You know, I, I was, I was going to marriage right. I knew how to do those relationships right. I knew how to parent. I was going to train my child up in the Lord and the way he would go. And when he was old, he would not depart from it. Then Abby was born. (laughs) And she taught me new levels of depravity and humiliation. But then, to make matters worse, a few years in, all our discipline, our training, I mean, she turned into the most wonderful child we would ever have. You can read between the lines on that. And she's great. I love Abby. And so what that caused then, instead of, man, humble, thank the Lord, all of a sudden, no, I do know what I'm doing. Oh, I got this. And the Lord sent me Pax, who I love. I love my son, Pax. (laughs) But, wow, you know, you know where I'm going with this. You have similar experiences. Every time you feel like, oh, I've got this. I've got control. I'm in charge. I'm doing this the right way. The Lord has a way. The world has a way. Life has a way of saying, no, you, you challenge accepted. It's like I remember I had a friend, and I, I've never prayed this prayer, um, <laughs> but maybe I've thought this prayer. I had a friend. We were literally we were praying together in college, and we were having this little prayer meeting. Some men gathered together. I call us men. We were college students, and I felt so old back then. Um, but, you know, but we were, we were praying together. We were, that was good. We were doing this. But I remember he, he prayed right there in front of all of us. He said, Lord, just give me patience and give it to me now. <laughs> and I was like, the whole room chuckles. We're like, nobody should pray that prayer, man. It's like, the Lord will grant that prayer. He will, he will grant it. All I'm saying is Ecclesiastes is a book that's going to remind us time and time again that none of your systems are ultimately going to prove valuable and useful because you're not in control. The system never works out exactly as you expect. So you have little control in life and no control over death. You cannot, and the Sermon on the Mount in the New Testament, Jesus preaching, says these exact same things. By worrying about any of these things, what you eat, what you wear, what you do, you can't make one day longer in your life. You don't know what's going to happen. You have no control over this. Then Ecclesiastes is going to uh, stab at another topic that the book of Job has, has covered very clearly. Is we will see very little justice and vindication for the righteous in this life. 
Often that is just the reality of the world we live in is no matter how righteous you are, things may not work out and God may not vindicate you in some glorious, obvious, apparent way in front of people around you. Job is a wonderful book to show us this, but then we do get to the end of the book and what happens to Job? He does get vindication. And so there's, yes, that does happen sometimes. But so many countless saints throughout the ages never experienced that vindication. Um, they are suffered. They're, they're killed. In fact, our pinnacle term for being a witness for Christ, what's our term for that in English? Do you know? The ultimate witness would be to do what? To be martyred. Martyr is literally just the Greek word for witness. But we kind of have it backwards in our mind. We know that that the ultimate witness is to die for your faith, yet at the same time we, we have this expectation that God will always vindicate and come to the aid and rescue and deliver those who are on his side when that's often not the case. So you won't always see justice or vindication for the righteous. And number three, and then we'll dive into the text. The wicked may even prosper without punishment from the Lord. So one day I was driving on a road here. Um, I don't know if you know this old Spanish trail here. The speed limit is 30. Um, between here and Ladnir. Um, if you're familiar with the road, um, I, just, you know, you don't have to be honest. I just know in, your, in your, your heart, do you drive 30 on that road? If, you, if you're regular around here, I know you probably don't. Um, because 30 just feels like I could be walking um, on this road compared to that, that speed. But I, I've seen a lot of people pulled over on that road. And regularly I'll see a traffic cop pulled back waiting. And so, I, you know, I just really don't want a ticket. I can't afford a ticket. So, I just try to be very patient and go no more than like 34.5 on that road. You know what I'm talking about. I, I, I limit what I'm going. And one day somebody pulled up behind me. And I, I'm actually that day I was going right at 30, 30 exactly. And I'd already set my cruise. And I, it's so painful to set cruise at 30 miles an hour. It just is. But, it, you know, it feels like it's four years I'm on that stretch. It's like 45 seconds. It just feels like an eternity. But this guy just pulls up behind me and is like, I wanted to brake check him. You know, that's not legal, by the way. Don't do that. Um, I wanted to, though, because he was just being a jerk about it. And then finally, he just whips around me, flies over, going down the road. I don't know. It felt like he got up to 80. He probably only got up to 45. But he's, he's flying away from me. And immediately you hear the siren, see the lights. He gets pulled over. I'm like, that, that is justice. You know, I have been vindicated today, you know, not that I'll never speed, it's just in that moment I felt vindication, but how often is that just not what happens? They, they fly by you to, you know, had you ever been the guy, you got one speeding ticket ever for that one time you sped, and everybody knows speeds every day, and they've had two in their entire lives, and it's like, how is this fair? You know, and the reality is that maybe it's not, right? There's, there's no guaranteed system of fairness and judgment, in the world, and often, and those are light examples. We know much more wicked examples in life where evil, truly, you know, undeniably evil things take place, and there's no vindication. There's no judgment against those things, and uh, the Bible says that happens. That's part of what's going on in Ecclesiastes, is indeed that is part of the world we live in. So this is our reality check. So with those pessimistic ideas in mind, let's read this passage, because you can make some false um, assumptions, maybe some false conclusions based on what we're going to read today. And I want you to know that Ecclesiastes is not condoning these things. It's accepting them. And ultimately, it's going to ask the question, well, how do we live as God's people in a world 
that operates this way. If there's no guarantee that righteousness produces success, there's no guarantee that wickedness produces, you know, suffering, how should we live as people who fear the Lord? So let's dive in. Who is like the wise? Ecclesiastes 8.1. Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. I say keep the king's command because of God's oath to him, or because of your oath to God, depending on the translation. It's a hard thing to translate. But either way, the idea is the same. Keep the king's command. Do not be hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? So we're making no judgment about whether or not this king is righteous or unrighteous, just simply that who gets to decide what they're doing that day? The king does. And if you disagree with the king, because what the king is doing is wrong, what are we going to do today? We're still doing what the king said. Because of what? He's the king. He's sovereign. So give us some practical wisdom here. Be careful then how you operate in the presence of the king. Don't, Don't run out. Keep the king's command as far as is possible, for the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time (coughs) and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it is? Will be So you don't know how this is going to work out. Uh, you do know that if you disobey the king right now, what's, what's going to happen? There's going to be punishment. There's going to be anger. There's going to be wrath and fury. So there's a sense in which Solomon's caution to you here is just go with the flow. You know, if the king's doing something stupid, well, just, just kind of quietly, as little as possible maybe, but just kind of follow the stupid because it may come back around to the wise and, you know, it's, it's going to go both ways. If you stand hard on a righteous position, uh, you may not be around to do the good stuff later. It may not work out. So you can tell that's kind of worldly wisdom sounding. Doesn't it feel that way? Some it doesn't seem like this is how Jesus would tell us to act. Right? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There's no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Now be very clear, Solomon is not looking at this situation and calling this good. He's not saying in reality that this is the way you should live your life. Just, and just go with the flow. Go with the flow is only a good attitude if your only goal in life is to survive. If you want to make it to the next pendulum swing then you need to just go with the flow of the pendulum, right? It, society changes. You know, we, we go from red to blue and red to blue, and we just go back and forth. That's always going to be the nature of American culture until we have some major shift, and then there'll be a, a new pendulum swing within that shift. Even in this particular case, Solomon says the king, good king, bad king. Good king, bad king. You read the kings, you read the narrative of God's people in the Old Testament, it's exactly what it feels like. Well, this guy destroyed all the temples. This guy rebuilds them. 
this guy destroys all the temples. And it's just the swing goes back and forth. Well, if you want to survive those pendulum swings, well, just go with the flow. But then what's he say? But you can't actually control the day of death, can you? See, he's really unworking the argument that it sounds like he's making. In the beginning, he's not saying go with the flow. He's saying, man, even if you go with the flow, though, you could still die right along that path. There's nothing about going with the flow that guarantees that the day of death is further off. This is all a vanity. Verse 10, then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to evil. Now there's a point in Ecclesiastes I can fully embrace. Total depravity. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. That's going to tie into the conclusion. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. So the ultimate then judgment on whether or not you're doing life correctly has nothing to do with how long you prolong your life how much wealth you possess, or any of these other pragmatic markers of success, but only whether or not you feared the Lord in what you did. Now, he's going to connect that directly to judgment at the end of the book, but we're not there yet, so let's keep moving along. This, there is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. Well, this is exactly what we've said. What happens to the righteous people? The things that should happen to the wicked. What happens to the wicked people? The things that should happen to the righteous. So this is a vanity. It takes place. I see it all over the place. It says, I said that this is vanity, and I commend joy, for man has no good under the sun, no good thing under the sun, but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him to live under the sun. So what's it seem to be that Solomon's verdict is, if life is just vanity, there's no guarantee that the righteous get blessed, there's no guarantee that the wicked suffer, there's no guarantee that you can prolong your life, there's no guarantee that you can manage success, you have no control, all may be hopeless, and every endeavor that you do then you should just do what with your life? Eat, drink, and be merry. All right, well, we can interpret that in a correct way. We can interpret that in an incorrect way. Because you can eat, drink, and be merry and totally honor the Lord. Or you can eat, drink, and be merry and completely miss serving the Lord. Now, to make, let's just finish. Let's get to the end. We're going to go to verse 10 in chapter 9 before we try to bring this all together. But that's so far, that's the eat, drink, and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of the life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and see the busyness that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun, 
How much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know why, he cannot find it out. Chapter 9, verse 1. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all. How the righteous and the wise, their deeds are in the hand of God. One very important side note, this is throughout Scripture, especially in the wisdom literature, is there is nothing that happens in this life that is not under God's sovereign control. All things are part of God's plan. This is clearly there, how the righteous and the wise, their deeds are in the hand of the Lord, whether it is love or hate. Man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice, as the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. What's the same event, to be clear, that happens to everyone? It is death. It's an evil that's done under the sun, that this event happens to them all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate, their envy, have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garment be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because this is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Now, we've ended on what seems like a very solemn note, but this is actually a point in Ecclesiastes where we have some of the most clarity that we have in the book. We'll have a whole lot of clarity, I think, in the very end, but at this point, I would say this is actually one of the highlights of the book, and so what we're going to do is kind of summarize the message of Ecclesiastes up to this point. So how do we live, this is the question we're asking, how do we live and fear God in the condition where death is certain? where all this pessimistic worldview does seem to make sense, where the righteous suffer and the wicked enjoy life. How do we live as God's people if this is the case? Number one, it's very simple. You must enjoy what God has given you. So this is one thing the author of Ecclesiastes is operating under, the assumption that whatever you are doing in life, wherever you are in life, you were there by God's design. You were doing what you were doing because God has placed you in that moment. This is God's plan for your life. How do you know it's God's plan for your life? Because you're there. This is what you're doing. You see the same attitude in the New Testament with the Apostle Paul. He says, well, whatever you're doing when you got saved, 
And just keep doing that thing unless God makes something abundantly clear to change it. If you were a slave, just keep being a slave. If you were free, well, be free. Don't make yourself a slave. If you're married, well, stay married. If you're not married, well, just stay not married. Stay where you are because that is God's plan for your life. He's given you this portion. He's put you right there. There's some specific work in that spot God has called you to do. Nothing is meaningless. Nothing is purposelessness. You are there for some specific reason. And enjoy that. That God, in some specific way, is manifesting his glory through your life. All of creation is designed to give glory to God. It's what we're for. We know this is a basic tenet of theology. We all exist for the glory of God. But understand that God was not lonely and needed us to complete himself. That's not Christianity. God is God without us. He created all of this to manifest his goodness, to display his glory, and whatever portion you have in life, whatever your lot is, wherever you are, you exist, you have the joy of being able to manifest the glory of God where you are. You don't have to be a king. You don't have to be a queen. You don't have to be a martyr. You don't have to do anything amazing or great by our standards. You just do the thing God gave you to do, and that counts. There's a gloriousness in that. By God's design and joy, what he gave you to do. And second, you must work hard doing what God has given you. Whatever calling you have in life, whatever spot in life, whatever thing, as he says here, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Do it as hard as you can. Work at it. Enjoy it. Enjoy the fruit. Enjoy the labor itself. You know, we can use analogies from farming or whatever you do in life, all of your hobbies, You know, there's so many times things are hard and we just want to press the easy button, make it all go away. But we all know the reality of that is we actually get the joy from the work itself. This is by God's design. He's not only given you a specific thing to do, but he's made it so that what would make you happy is doing that specific thing that he gave you to do. Joy is a fundamental tenet of Christianity, but it's not found through meeting all these desires out in the world, but rather through honoring the Lord and what he's called you to do. This is the reality we are given. So enjoy what God has given you to do. Work hard doing what God has given you to do. And then number three, and this one we have to handle with care, you only get to live this life once. You only get to live this life once. Now often Ecclesiastes is accused, and I think falsely, of looking at the world through a lens of no afterlife, certainly no resurrection. So in the Christian worldview, in fact, I hate the phrase YOLO, which is what this is about. Y'all, y'all know YOLO, right? Some, people, some of you are like, what? I have no idea what you're talking about. YOLO is just the, the abbreviation, like LOL, you know, there's text messaging abbreviations. What, what do you call those? Like, uh, I don't know, it's a poor English, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, YOLO means you only live once, and usually that's an expression that you say right before you make a bad decision. You know what I mean? It's like, you only live once, so I might as well party this weekend. Okay, no, no, okay. It's your only opportunity to do that stupid thing you'll ever get. Okay, well, from an Ecclesiastes perspective, let me slightly change it. This is the only opportunity you'll get to do that good thing. This is the only opportunity you'll get to enjoy that work. 
This is the only opportunity you'll get to store up the treasures in heaven. This is the only opportunity you'll get to live for the kingdom. This is the only opportunity you get to sow good things into the life that will be. Now, Ecclesiastes does very, very clearly emphasize the afterlife. Like that's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments because judgment is coming. When does that judgment come? After you die, so therefore after life. The judgment is fundamental to how Ecclesiastes is operating. And it's because of judgment that he's emphasizing the significance of how you live in this life. That's what he means by fear of the Lord. You only get to live this life once leading up to that judgment. So go to that judgment knowing this is your only shot. Now, to be very clear, we're, we're reading this from a New Testament perspective in the Old Testament. At no point at any time in God's narrative have we been saved by righteousness. We don't get to judgment and get weighed and by that weight get determined whether or not we go in. Even in the Old Testament, it was only by faith. In the New Testament, it is only by faith. So I want to make sure we leave the passage today or as Zach said the other day, leave, leave happy instead of leave sad. Um, I want to make sure we have a fuller, include the New Testament perspective um, on how we see this. So the larger picture of life. The New Testament makes some of these Old Testament principles more clear, but they were in the Old Testament. They're just more clear in the New Testament. They were being revealed in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, they're being um, concluded, made, made apparent, made obvious, and that is most clearly seen in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was crucified, dead, and buried. And then the reason we worship on Sunday is because our Lord and Savior conquered death. That's what we get excited about Easter for. We celebrate Easter technically every single week. We celebrate the Lord's Day rather than what was in the Old Testament, the Sabbath day, because we are excited about the joy and glory of the resurrection. And in the resurrection, Jesus embodied the book of Ecclesiastes leading up to his death, because he was righteous, he was perfect, yet what happened to him? The things that should have happened to the wicked. He was persecuted. He was shamed. He was the one despised and rejected by men. He was the one crucified, the one who was perfect, the one who was righteous. He's the book of Ecclesiastes. But then, that's Friday. God rests on Saturday, Sunday morning, Jesus walks out of that tomb and the very body that was destroyed and the very body that had been broken and the very body that had been despised and shamed, he now walks, still bearing on his body the scars of the crucifixion, redeemed in his flesh, and the scriptures are very firm about this, he is the firstborn of the resurrection, the first fruits of the resurrection, meaning very clearly, That's what he's going to grant to us. So in the New Testament worldview, we have a very clear picture of what's coming. And the thing that is coming is redemption. God will redeem all things. We know that the life we are living has meaning, and we get to play this role in it. We need to eat, drink, and be merry in this role, but it's part of a larger story where it all matters. And so the grounding 
thing of Ecclesiastes is we don't get to the New Testament and say, oh, forget about Ecclesiastes, we can be happy. No, in fact, the New Testament reinforces this Old Testament Ecclesiastes idea because we need to focus on the thing God has given us to do because we know that it has meaning specifically in the redeemed creation. We know where it's leading, and we should pick up our head, look around at all this, and say, we know God's going to fix this. We know it's going to be worth it. We know we're going to see a glory greater on the other side than anything we could fathom negatively today. Any experience I could have today, I know will be redeemed and be worth it on the other side. We have a greater picture, a greater reason to obey what Ecclesiastes is saying. Just fear the Lord. Keep His commandments. Obey. We know. We know better even than he could see back then. God will redeem all things. But second, in this last section, God will judge all things. So we know that in this life, we don't always get to see this strict principle of you reap what you sow. But what we do know is in the greater narrative of life, in the greater redemptive story, we will see all of God's justice. We will see God's justice performed in its full um, we will see, you know, we love to watch movies like Man on Fire. We love to watch movies where the good guy just destroys the bad guy. We, we like the sense of justice and the glory of the gospel. We get to see it. Now, I know some of you immediately jump to in your mind, well, what if there's this guy I want justice to and then he gets saved? And then he doesn't, he doesn't experience the justice I want him to see. And I will have you know that you will be fully satisfied by the same justice in that moment as God is satisfied by justice in that moment in the blood of Christ. So whether it's in wrath for eternity or the blood of Christ, we will see all and experience and know the joy of righteousness in the grand story, one way or the other. God will judge all things. Maybe the most beautiful part of this narrative is this last point. We can live in communion with God under the sun. Under the sun is Ecclesiastes' expression for now, this age, this life, this time. We don't have to wait for heaven to have communion with the Lord. We have communion with the Lord today. This was true in the Old Testament. The faithful walked by faith, not by righteous deeds. We do the same in the New Testament. We know more. We have a fuller, maybe, experience with the Lord. But it's the same. We have communion with the Lord day. Let's just be real. That should be the most satisfying part of the Christian life. Not as God going to open up the storehouses of blessing if I give this tithe. Oh, the Lord blessed me. Yeah, I, I get excited when the Lord blesses me. It is joyful to be blessed by the Lord. It's, it's a wonderful feeling. But there's nothing compared to experiencing the blessing of communion with the Lord. This is what we are granted now. We can walk in intimate fellowship with Christ, our Savior. We don't have to wait till heaven. So I don't care what your circumstance is, how good or how bad it may be, we have the opportunity to fellowship with the Lord every single day. So I encourage you to walk in that faithfulness.